the Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Today we gather in virtual worship. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. The liturgy, music, and sermon are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation today and later around the globe. The service includes the sermon on our summer theme, Traditions in Mark, along with music and liturgy from previous services. We welcome your support and responses. We invite your attention to the possibilities for ministry and pastoral care available on our website. We await your self-selection of forms of leadership, ministry, and service in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, when again it is permitted and safe to do so, your presence with us here in worship. Although the nave is empty, the music is full. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Let us pray. Holy God, faithful and unchanging, enlarge our minds with the knowledge of your truth and draw us more deeply into the mystery of your love, that we may truly worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now, now, and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Generous God, we gather in your house to praise you. The opportunity to say thank you is a blessing. We thank you for those times of plenty. Let us never take those times for granted in our work ethic instead of your grace. As the choir sings the Kyrie, let us pray. Lord, have mercy. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.
lesson from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew at me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongues. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be the God. Please join me in reading Psalm 8 with the antiphon. Our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded the Lord, the mouth of your foes, the sad 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established. What are human beings that you are mindful of? Mortals that you Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please rise as you're able for the Gloria Patri. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Glory to you, O Lord. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe the good news. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. The theme of this year's summer sermon series here at Marsh Chapel is Traditions in the Gospel of Mark. And since today is, in a sense, the first Sunday in the theme, I thought it would be good to begin with uh, the first chapter of Mark. Now back before the COVID era, I used to lead the Sunday Bible study here at Marsh Chapel. And uh, the first semester I led it, the book we did was the Gospel of Mark. And I chose to do Mark for one thing, because 
it's the shortest of the Gospels. And so it makes it easy to get through it in a single semester without having to do more than one or two chapters at a time. The second reason I chose to do the Gospel of Mark was because it is most likely the oldest of the Gospels. Uh, some believe that the Gospel of Matthew is older, but the prevalent opinion among scholars today is that Mark was written first, and Matthew, as well as Luke, used the Gospel of Mark as the model for their Gospels. And you know, even though some may still disagree over whether Mark or Matthew came first, there is an even wider agreement that Mark was written sometime around 70 AD. So something like 35 years after the apostles first went out proclaiming the gospel. Now, as for who the author is, we don't know exactly. Uh, according to an early tradition, Mark was believed to have been an assistant to the apostle Peter, who accompanied Peter on at least one missionary journey, uh, possibly to Rome, and served as his Greek interpreter. Sometime later, it was believed, Mark wrote down what he recalled of Peter's teachings about the life of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts in the New Testament also tells us about a person named Mark who was a prominent early Christian from Jerusalem, who knew the apostle Peter and accompanied the apostle Paul on some of his journeys. And it was often assumed that this was the same Mark who later wrote the gospel. Even if this early tradition about the authorship of Mark is uh, nothing more than a legend, it can still, I think, potentially shed some light on the real history of the book. For one thing, it tells us that the written gospel was always believed to have been based on an older set of oral teachings, and that these oral teachings were believed to have had their roots in the preaching of the apostles. Secondly, the legends about the authorship of the gospel of Mark suggests that the reason it was written down in the first place was to preserve those oral traditions at a time when many of the original disciples and church elders were passing away. And a date sometime in the 60s or 70s AD would make sense in that case. Third, the notion that the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome around 70 AD by a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian from Jerusalem is, I think, actually not that far-fetched. Christianity in the first century was a mixed body, composed of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The church in Rome seems to have likely been heavily mixed early on, uh, with many members of both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Now, even if Peter didn't actually go to Rome, as the legends claim, it's not unlikely that prominent Christians linked to the churches in Judea may have visited the Christians in Rome from time to time. Rome was, after all, the center of the empire, and we know that the Apostle Paul, for one, took the time to write a long letter to the churches in Rome in advance of a planned visit. Well, now, I'm not arguing that the legend about the Gospel of Mark's authorship uh, and him writing it in, the, in Rome is necessarily true, uh, but I'm only pointing out that a thing like that would not be too far-fetched. What makes the legend of the Gospel's authorship interesting to me is not so much the possibility of its historical accuracy but rather the ways in which it reflects certain themes and tensions within the book itself. No matter where the book was written, the decade in which it was written was not a good time for Christians or Jews in the Roman Empire. In 63 AD, the tensions in the province of Judea, the Jewish homeland, which was part of the Roman Empire, boiled over first into a revolt against Roman rule, and then into a total war. The words of Jesus in Mark chapter 13 would have been taken at the time <clears throat> as a reference to the events of the Jewish war. It was a war in which the Roman armies killed as many as 100,000 Judeans and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And it was one in which, at one point, the Jewish militants terrorized and murdered fellow Jews who refused to support their cause. And in Mark chapter 13, you can feel the enormous sorrow that Jesus expresses for the sufferings of his people. It's a sorrow that we can imagine the author of the gospel would have shared as well. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the hills. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his coat. 
Alas, for the women who are pregnant and nursing in those days, and pray that it might not happen in winter. For there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation until now. And so we see this great weight of concern. And at the same time, Christians are warned in that same part of the book not to confuse the claims of the revolutionaries with the cause of Jesus Christ. We can imagine that the, Christian, uh, the, the Jewish Christians in Judea would have been under tremendous pressure to get on board with the prevalent belief that the uprising was the work of God. Some might have even hoped that Christ himself could return in the midst of the war to intervene on the Jews' behalf. But the gospel draws a line. It says that false Christs and false prophets will arise in those days to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. When Christ comes again at the end of the age, it will not be to lend to support to those waging war. If anything, it will be despite them. As the psalm says, he makes wars to cease throughout the earth. The kingdom of God, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, would not come about through human war and bloodshed. Uh, you also have to realize that just because the Christians didn't support the rebellion in Judea, it doesn't mean that they sided with the Roman Empire either. Many Christians had experienced for themselves the kinds of brutality that Rome was capable of. The Christians in the city of Rome, just a few years before the Gospel of Mark would have been written, had suffered horrendous persecutions at the hands of the Emperor Nero. And even though Mark's Gospel may not have been written in Rome, the news of those events would have spread far and remained in the forefront of many Christians' minds for some time thereafter. From what we can tell, the early Christians in the Roman Empire did acknowledge the authority of the state in civil matters. Jesus had refused to side with those in Israel who claimed that it was unlawful for Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And the letter of 1 Timothy, written some time later, reminded Christians to pray for all people including the kings and the rulers. Some Christians, for all we know, may have even respected the relative peace and stability that Rome had brought to many parts of the empire at the time. But Christians were under no illusions about the character of Roman power, and they could not, in good conscience, support the claims that the empire made about itself. The Roman empires not only presented themselves as great exalted leaders, but also as gods. When Augustus Caesar became the first emperor, one of his titles was the Son of God. And over the years following, Rome developed an imperial religion based on the worship of the past and the present emperors. There's one surviving inscription from the first century BC uh, that refers to Augustus Caesar as the divine savior, whose birth had been the beginning of the good news for the world. It's probably no accident that Mark begins his gospel with similar words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And some manuscripts add, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He frames the story at the beginning in a way that will remind his audience who the true Savior is. And the entire introduction to the book can be read as the coronation of the true divine king. The term Christ or Messiah is a kingly title in the Old Testament. It meant the anointed one. In the Old Testament times, the kings would be anointed with oil when they assumed the throne. In the gospel, at the beginning, Jesus is anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit, which descends upon him like a dove, a symbol not of war, but of peace, as he rises from the waters of baptism. And the voice from heaven declares in the line from Psalm 2, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. In an age when Christians were being fed to lions and Jews were increasingly antagonized over their refusal to take part in the religion of the empire, the author of Mark reminds his readers that even though Caesar may seem to be supreme, it is Christ who is on the throne. And the good news of his kingdom is infinitely greater than the good news claimed by the petty kingdom of Rome. The notion that you must always support one side or another 
in a human conflict is wrong. Sometimes both sides in a conflict are wrong. It's not always the case. But when our culture presents us with dichotomies and pressures us to make a choice between them, it is good to pause and consider. At great cost to themselves, the early Christians supported neither the lies and pretensions of Roman propaganda, nor the claims of those who insisted that armed rebellion was the only alternative to it. Faced with a choice between empire and rebellion, Christians chose a third way, the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They followed a Messiah who had not come to earth as a ruler or a military leader to build a kingdom for himself alone, but who came in the humble guise of an itinerant prophet and healer. And though at any moment throughout the gospel, the story of his life, he could have called down fire to destroy his, his opponents and establish the kingdom of God, he didn't do it. Instead, he chooses the way of peace and humility. And instead of going to the throne, he goes to the cross for our sins. And those who believe in him, as John the Baptist prophesies, are baptized with the same spirit so that they too might walk in the way of peace, even in the midst of all the troubles that afflict the present evil age. And so the Christians in Mark's day walked as best they could in the way of peace, even when it brought them to a cross, because they knew that their Lord was with them and that the death with which the world threatened them was no match for the resurrecting power of God. It is impossible to understand the gospel without this contrast between the way of the cross and the way of glory. The glory of the world is a pretension. The true glory of God goes through the way of the cross. It is likewise impossible to understand the gospel apart from its apocalyptic dimension. That though Christ died an ignominious death, that he rose again and will come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring the kingdom in full. The reason why the Christians in Mark's day were able to see through the false promises of their age and culture was because they looked beyond them to a better age yet to be revealed. Having that perspective does not mean consigning every human endeavor to failure or denying the possibility of progress, but it does mean that no human work can ever achieve the permanence and perfection of the age to come. The calling of Christ to the Christians in the Gospel of Mark is not to build for themselves the kingdom of God. It's to have salt in themselves and be at peace. The kingdom of God is not built with human hands. It comes at the end of the age by the power of God. And Christians are called, in the meantime, not to build it, but to reflect its light. To reflect for this world the light of a kingdom that is already dawning, but has not yet come in full. It's in light of the dawning horizon that the promises and the shortfalls of this age appear in clear relief. And as we walk in this pilgrim way, today and as we go forth today, it behooves us to recall that even in times of great trial, great suffering, the author of Mark and the communities for which he wrote remembered the power and the truth of their Lord. Amen.
Please be seated. We come now to a time of prayer in the service. I invite you to assume a posture of prayer that best allows you to support the prayers of the community. Remain seated, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as the choir leads us in the call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. Today's prayer is adapted from the writings of the Right Reverend Gerilyn Wolf, Episcopal Bishop. Let us pray. Gracious God, who knit our inmost parts before we were born, and who shelters us with a strong hand, in gratitude receive the prayers we offer as we respond to each petition by saying, Kyrie eleison. In thanksgiving for the unity we share through our death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, that we who have been entrusted with the gift of new life may bring life to the world and renewed hope to our church. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the courage to hold fast to the high ideals of our calling, bringing the lamp of charity to those who live in despair and desperation, and through through their cries receive the saving grace that enlightens our ministry. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For a renewed sense of the body of Christ, the church, that together with our bishops, church leaders, and all ministers, we may rededicate ourselves in the unity of the triune God. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the urgency to seek peace before the battle breaks, and economic justice before the weight of poverty fractures the will of nations. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For the forgiveness of our sins, that the wounds that we inflict on one another in the name of righteousness may be healed by the divine life that overcomes human frailty. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. For those whose lives are approaching death, and for those who have died, especially those we remember in our hearts now, that they and their loved ones may receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit. For this we pray. Kyrie eleison. We pray these things in the name of Christ, who baptized us with fire and water and called us to be a baptizing community. And now we are bold to pray in the words Jesus taught his early disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
triune God, in response to the love you have shown us by creating, redeeming, and sustaining us, we offer these our tithes and offerings. Bless them that they might serve you by serving others, and bless us to do the same. We pray these things reliant upon your grace, love, and communion. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace and serve the living God. Amen. <laughs>